Hey, gang. Uh, my name is David Dries. Uh, for those of you who don't know, my wife and I, uh, Morgan, we moved here about three and a half years ago. We've been coming to Antioch ever since. Uh, and I know Cody and some of them are down in San Diego, so they asked if I would speak. And so, so here we are. And Matt's bringing up the little table thingy. That's awesome. I asked Nolan if I could have a face mic, and he said no. So um, here I am holding this thing. It's very awkward for me, so I apologize for that. Thank you, Matthew. Um, so I'm excited to talk about today, and I feel like it was really led in well, first by some of the songs we were singing, and then second by what Sarah was just sharing. We really are trying to get to the heart of things. Um, the sermon series that a couple of us sat down in a room and prayed about and talked about is called Brick by Brick, and it really, Cody laid it out right after the new year, and the whole concept is let's build into our lives like Christ is brick by brick, adding to the wall that metaphorically surrounds Jerusalem, right? Let's add bricks to the wall to build a stronghold for Jesus. Like if our body is supposed to be this temple for Christ, that he dwells inside of it, let's build it up so it's strong, that it has a foundation that's set on something real. And so we started to unravel that. And so Cody initially started with saying, hey, the first thing we have to do is just get with Jesus. And so he spent time talking about what does it look like for us to just be with Jesus, to sit down with him, whether that's for five minutes or 10 hours, it doesn't matter. The idea is be there. He wants us to show up because he's there. And then he kind of pushed us along a little more and said, hey, when we're with Jesus, the most important thing we can dive to, the best way for us to know him is to dive into his scriptures. And he's talked about how the Bible is not something that we look at and try to fit our life around how we want the Bible to look, but we let the Bible speak to us and tell us how our life is supposed to look and tell us how we're supposed to think and feel and go about our lives and go about our days and how we're supposed to love people. And so he really level set us on, hey, the Bible is our authority, and that's how we know Jesus, and that's how we follow Jesus, and that's how we pursue Jesus. And so I just want to take it a step further. And, and uh, Cody said, hey, today I'd love for you to talk about this idea of surrendering to Jesus, this idea of submitting to Christ. We can call it trusting him, whatever it looks like, but we want to talk through that. And it's a pretty Christian-y phrase. So if you grew up in a church, you, you probably heard the idea of surrendering uh, to Jesus. Ironically, that's the word surrender doesn't even appear in the New Testament at all. And it only appears in the Old Testament six or seven times around the idea of like an army surrendering to uh, another army. So it's not even this concept that directly you read and say, oh, this is how I surrender because the Bible says do this. Like it would be so nice if it did that. I would just read that and we'd be done and we'd pray and get out of here. But it doesn't. But it's implicit in there. It's really, really implicit in there. There are scriptures that say things like, you need to take up your cross and follow me. It says in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of Man who gave himself to me. Right? There's these implicit directions of this is what it looks like, this is what it means to surrender. There's a, there's a totality to it. There's a weight to it. I've been crucified with Christ. You want to take up your cross and follow me? Hey, for those who, who are in this room are married, I remember reading this when I was about to get married in Ephesians 5. It's like my least favorite scripture in the whole Bible because it says, Husbands, love your wives like Christ loved the church and gave himself up for it. And I was like, man, that is not great, you know, because he died for the church. And I really like doing a lot of things that I like doing, and I don't want to give them up. Like the first day we got married, I remember we got back from our honeymoon, and we got home, and Morgan was in the bedroom, like, getting ready. And then she's like, hey, are you coming to bed? And I was holding the remote, about to turn ESPN on. And I was like, we don't, uh, we don't watch Sports Center before bed anymore? That's not a thing that we do? And she was like, we never did that. And I was like, you're right. And I was like, okay. And I, like, set it down and went to bed. Because I'm like, I didn't know that. I didn't know I was going to have to give that up. <sighs> Talk about dying to self. Um, 
But that's what I'm talking about. There's these, there's these verses that implicitly say, hey, if you want to follow Jesus, then you have to surrender. And I'm not asking you to be like, hey, maybe just like be good, be nice, like just be like, tell your wife, like, tuck her in. Like you need, and that's a silly analogy, right? But I'm going to use it. Like you need to die to yourself the way Christ died for his church. That's surrender. And so I'm going to talk about that today. And I wish I could say here are the six steps of surrender. Uh, I don't think it's like that. And Nolan brought this up when he was when he was singing, and I think maybe you did. It was one of the Gilmores. Doesn't matter. Uh, they're one and the same. One flesh. It's the Bible. Um, one of the Gilmores said, "It's a heart thing. It's the heart that matters, right? This is this is what we're after. God's not after our begrudging submission. He's not after like a really disciplined military person. They're not ultimately bad things, right? He's not after, or he's not ultimately condemning." really disciplined people, but he's not after that, right? Discipline doesn't create love. Cody brought this up a couple weeks ago. Love creates discipline. Discipline doesn't create love. Love creates discipline. I do things for Morgan because I love her, even if I don't want to. If it's a discipline for me, I don't do them and go, now I've done them. You must love me, right? Like I chew with my mouth closed now. Do you love me? (laughs) That's a real thing. I'm really bad at it. Um, I didn't even know it. I sat around the table with my family one time, and Morgan was like, can you not hear it? And I looked around, and it was like, and I was like, I can hear it. I'm sorry. You know? Um, anyways, I digress. That, <laughs> I don't even know what I was talking about. Um, so here's what we're going to do. We're going we're gonna to dive through a couple things, and I want to share this first thought is to get there, the first place we have to go is this genuine understanding, this genuine belief, this genuine knowledge of who God is. And I'll use this example. Uh, My wife is pregnant with our second child right now. But when she was pregnant, let's go. uh, When she was pregnant with Oliver, our first, um, it was a really conceptual, like, thing for me. Because I wasn't, like, you know, I was there for, like, one experience part of it. And if you don't understand, talk to Cody about it later. Um, I was there for that. And then I just have, I just watched up until, like, I was like, what do we do now? Nothing? Okay. Like, I didn't do anything after that. And then on January 2nd, I was in the hospital watching, and I was like, this is crazy that this is happening, right? Still a concept. I, I know that there's a baby coming. I know that I'm going to love this child. My best friend, Phil, said something to me about two months before I had Oliver. I didn't have him. Before Morgan had Oliver, and I thought it was the meanest thing. I was like, you're a jerk for saying this. But he said to me, he goes, David, you just you don't even know the love that you're going to feel. Like, you can't even fathom it. You, you literally don't know. And I literally was like, that is so rude. Like, why would you say that to me? Like, I, I know what it's going to feel like. And he's like, you don't. He was so right. I had no idea, right? I had zero idea. And it wasn't like you're deficient if you haven't experienced it and you're amazing if you have. But I remember in the moment that he was born, I was like, whoa, this is like, this is what it means. This is unconditional love. Like, I didn't, like, fall in love with Oliver. It wasn't like he was born. I was like, I'm, you're pretty cool. I bet. You know what I mean? Like, I met Morgan. The first time I met Morgan, I didn't fall in love with her. I actually was dating someone else. I was like, hey, what's up? You know what I mean? And then... Throughout the six and a half years that we dated, I like fell madly in love with her. And every day I fell more and more in love with her. But it wasn't an, right, but when Oliver was born, I was like, I will kill anyone for you. Like, I will jump in front of a bus right now. You tell me to do it, I'll do it. Good thing you can't talk. Like, I love this kid. It was just, it went from concept to reality. I, uh, I have this picture, and, and it was seven minutes, I can't see the screen. Seven minutes after Oliver was born, will you throw that up there, Taylor? He's born, they put him on mama's chest. It's like, this is unreal. Then they, they're like, hey, we need to weigh and measure him. I'm like, this seems unnecessary in this moment, but they did. 
And they took him across the room, and they're like, do you want to watch? And I'm like, yeah, I've done nothing, so sure. Right? Um, so I go over, and I'm just, like, standing there. And I don't know why I did this, but I was like, I, like, stuck my finger out. And, like, he's not even looking. He just reached up, and he grabbed it right there. Right? You can see it. That's seven minutes into life. And I was like, dead. Like, I was dead. And he went from a concept that we talked about and we prayed about and we got excited about to a reality. Right? Then they let you go home and you're like, this is irresponsible. I don't know what I'm doing. We took him home. I remember laying him down. I have a picture of this too, but I won't show it. He's in his little bear suit because it's the dead of winter. And he's, I lay him down on the table and I'm just like, I'm like, I can't. They can't do this. Like, I don't know what I'm doing. But I love this thing so much. It moved from a concept to a reality, right? And that's, that's the first place we need to find ourselves in to submit to God. We can't submit ourselves to a concept. It's just not possible, right? Or it's irresponsible at best. You just can't do that. And so we have to have a genuine encounter with God. We have to know God. We have to be blown away by the reality of who he is. It actually says in um, Colossians, let me read it to you, Colossians 1 Verses, don't put it up. This is not the thing, Taylor. I don't know what you're putting up there at this point. Um, this is Colossians 1, uh, 15 through 21. Listen to this. This is who God is, right? The Son, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created. All things were created in him. Things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. Like, that's insane. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Like, just think about that one statement right there. All things hold together. No one in this room woke up chanting, breathe, breathe, keep beating hard, keep beating hard, continue to breathe, continue to breathe. Like, he's holding you together. He's holding your heart together. He's pumping it. He's keeping the atmosphere where it's supposed to be. We are exactly 93 million miles away from the sun, and if we got closer or further away, we'd be dead. He's holding all of that together, and then he's not even breaking a sweat, and he's not even stressed about it. That's who he is. Ready? It keeps getting crazier. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy for God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. God was like, I'm going to have all my fullness, everything about me, dwell in Christ. Ridiculous. Um, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Like, I'll explain it. Basically, God was like, you're my son. I'm going to have all my fullness dwell in you. All things are going to be created by you and for you. You're ahead of all things. Nothing existed that didn't exist because of you. You stood before them, and I'm going to have you be the one that reconciles them all back to us in the end, too. Like, ridiculous. Absolutely ridiculous. That's who your God is. There's a, a passage, and, and Taylor's going to help us read through it. It's in Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah was a really cocky, arrogant uh, prophet. He was the, I don't say that, like, he got, he got humbled much later. Uh, but coming into the situation, like, I feel I'm a good dude. I'm feeling great about myself. And he shows up, and uh, here's the story of it. Taylor, you can go ahead and throw it up there. You ready? In the year that King Uzziah died, this is Isaiah talking, I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne, and, his, and the train of his robe filled the temple. This part's wild. Above him were seraphims, each with six wings. 
With two wings, they covered their faces. With two, they covered their feet. And with two, they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is filled with his glory. Ready for this? At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and the thresholds shook. And the temple was filled with smoke. And then Isaiah says this, Woe to me! Now, woe! Is a curse. Anytime you read the Bible and they're like, woe to you, it's them saying, curse you. So he literally curses himself. He's like, woe to me, I cried. I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. We'll get to the last part in a second. So Isaiah shows up, and God shows up, and all he sees is really the back of his robe, and he's like, oh my gosh. I am unclean. I am not worthy to be here. And it's not God going, I'm going to come down there to make you feel like garbage. It's just God coming down and him being like, I can't believe how magnificent you are. And there's these, like, seraphims, and I don't know what they are. You Google, and there's some interesting drawings out there. It's fascinating. But really, there's these, at the end of the day, here's what's happening. God shows up, and everything starts shaking. Anytime God shows up, anywhere in the Bible, things shake. When he shows up on Sinai, the mountain shakes. Anytime God comes down, everything starts quaking. Uh, Tim Keller, who's a pastor in New York City, he talks about this concept of these three quakes. He goes, first there's this God quake, then there's a me quake, and then there's a life quake. And the God quake is God coming down and being like, here I am. And things actually shake. And these seraphims are floating around, and they're looking at God, and they're just singing over and over and over, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The earth is full, filled with his glory. Now, let me tell you what's cool about the holy, 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 and we'll move on. In the Bible, in, in, not even the Bible, back in the day, they didn't use words like he's very awesome or it's very deep. They would just double a word if it was supposed to mean something. So there's a, a part in Proverbs where it's talking about a very deep pit, and actually in the Greek it says there's a pit pit. He's like, oh, that's a really deep pit then. There's a part in Kings where they're like, it was, it was really fine gold. Or in the Greek, it says there, it is really, it was, it was gold gold. Like that was like legit gold. And so anytime they wanted to emphasize something, they would double it. Nowhere do you see things in triples, except for right here. When they say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Like he's in a different strata of holy. Like anytime something's holy, if it's like holy ground, you're like, I'll take my shoes off, right? Like, this is holy, holy ground. You're like, what do, I, what do I do? Like, this is unbelievable. Like, maybe I'll get down my face. This is holy, holy, holy. Isaiah's like, I'm dead. Like, this is so unbelievable. And here's what's crazy about him being blown away or us being blown away by God's holiness, right? There are so many things about God that we can get gained from. There's nothing that we gain from God's holiness. We, we could be super pumped about God's mercy because we can, we can get something from that. We get mercy from that. We could be so blown away by God's wisdom because but he can guide us. We could be so blown away by God's power because he can protect us. But when it comes to God's holiness, we can't get anything from that. And I'm going somewhere with this, but we can't get anything from his holiness. It's just beautiful. And so in this moment, when God chooses to come down, the thing that the seraphims are singing is, look how holy he is. They're not saying, look how powerful, and they're not saying, look how wise, and look how merciful and gracious he is, which he totally is. They're saying, look how holy he is, and it's just beautiful. Just look how beautiful God is. Like, it's insane. And in this moment, Isaiah is feeling God's glory. And the word for glory is actually translated into weight. And God, Isaiah is feeling this incredible weight. 
And the way Keller describes his God wake is the thing that's biggest, the thing with the most glory gets to make the most wake. Like if you drop something into water that's not heavier than water, it doesn't create any ripple. But if you drop a rock into water, it starts that quake. And so Isaiah is feeling this, and it's remarkable. He's having this, he's having this moment where he goes from God was a concept to him at some point, and he actually walked in here, and regardless if he's had this before, God is a definite reality to him. God is a deafening reality to him in this moment. Like he's having that transformative experience, and it's insane. And so he has this God quake where he's like blown away. God starts shaking things physically and spiritually. And then he has this me quake where he's like, I don't deserve to be here. You're so incredible. And then verse 8, Taylor, throw that up there. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, here I am, send me. And then he has this life quake. He has this moment where God moves from a concept to reality, and he sees God, and he experiences God, and then he is, he is saying, okay, my life has to change. I have to do something because of what I know now. Like, I can't just stay here and be like, wow, that was crazy. Like, he is, it's a catalyst for something. If you think about it in the, in the Gospels when uh, John, Peter, and James go up with Jesus on top of the mountain, and they witness this thing called the transfiguration where God and Moses and Jesus are, like, having coffee, and they're like, what in the world? Like, this is unbelievable. And Peter, like, Jesus is like, they're done. And Jesus is like, that was, what you like, what do you guys think? And Peter's like, we should build some tents here, and we should worship here forever. This was incredible. And Jesus is like, we're not going to do that. We're going to go back down, and we're going we're gonna to live changed lives because of this. And Peter's like, oh, yeah, 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 we're going to do that too, right? I guess I just love Peter. He's like, oh, we're doing, oh, no, we're doing that. We're doing that. That's good. Right? There's this mountaintop moment. There's this God moment where you, you realize that God is not just a concept, but he's a reality. And then there's this life moment where you go, and God's like, who am I going to send? And Isaiah's like, I'll, send, I'll go. He really should have been like, well, real quick, where are we going and what's going to happen? Because if you read the rest of Isaiah, you're like, that was not a great job to get. But that's a different story for a different day. He experiences God. We need to experience God. And for some of you, you're saying, that's an insane experience. I've not had that. God didn't show up at Antioch and throw his robe down and a bunch of weird angels started flying around. You know what? No one else has had that experience either. That was legitimately Isaiah's experience. Jeremiah, a chapter, or a book before, he's also a prophet. His experience is very different. God shows up, and he's like, I've chosen you. And he's like, you don't want to choose me. I am, I am short, and I'm not good at speaking. You don't want me. And God's like, I'm choosing you, and I'm going to equip you. Let's do it. So Jeremiah's experience is very different than Isaiah. Isaiah walks in. He's a very proud, very confident man, and God humbles him and sends him. Jeremiah's experience is God shows up, and he's like, I am not great. And God says, I'm going to build you up, and I'm going to send you. Totally different experiences. And that's their experiences. But we, if we haven't had a moment or an ex- a season where we felt like God went from a concept to a reality, we got we to gotta plead for that first. Because this idea of I'm going to submit to something that I'm not actually involved with is silly. We might as well just go online and be like, I married that person. And I've never met them and I don't know them, but I'm, I'm going to marry them. That's a foolish move. You would never do that. It's like if you went through your Instagram or Facebook, you're like, I'm best friends with all these people. No, you're not. Like, you don't even know them. Like, I went through and cleaned out mine the other day, and I was like, who is that? Click. I don't even know you. Why would I care about your stories? Um, so, yeah. So, first, we have to have this experience where we go from a concept to a reality. But once we've gone to that place... And we start talking about this idea of like, okay, I want to submit my life to this person, to God. 
I want to surrender everything I have, which is a scary idea. And we'll get there in a second. We have to believe something when it comes to submitting. We have to believe in the person and nature of God more than we believe in anything else. Like I'll give you, this is a pithy phrase. I hate pithy phrases, but I'm going to use it because it's good. We have to trust the promiser more than any of the promises. The promises are good and they're great, but we can't then be like, I'm going to surrender to God because he says uh, he's going to give me a hope and a future. Like Jeremiah 29.11, he's got got plans for me. Oh, I can't wait for these plans. He's got a hope and a future for me. Oh, I'm so in for that. We can't submit ourselves to Jesus because we're like excited about uh, the benefits that he shares. We can't do that. We have to trust the actual promiser. And there's a story, um, and for time's sake, I may or may not read it. There's a story in Genesis 22. It's the story of Abraham and Isaac. And for those of you who grew up in the church, you're like, heard this. This is, this is terrifying. For those of you who don't know it, I'm going to share with you. Abraham is a man that God has chosen to build out the people of God underneath. He says, like, your descendants are going to be as numerous as the stars in the sky and the whole church and the whole salvation of the world is going to come through you. Abraham is like, okay, that's a tall order. Can't wait to have kids. And then God just doesn't allow him and his wife to have kids. In fact, in Genesis 19, God finally shows up in a tent and he's talking to Abraham. It's like one of the funnier parts of the Bible. He's in a tent with Abraham and Abraham is super old. And he's like, hey, uh, you're going to have a kid. And Abraham's like, how can this be? I'm old. And my wife is similar. Like, he doesn't even call her old. He's like, she's also in a place of that. Like, he's like, I'm afraid to call her old. <laughs> and God's like, no, you're going to have a son. And then Sarah, his wife, is outside the tent. She starts laughing. And God's like, who's laughing? Sarah, were you laughing? This is what he says. And she's like, I didn't laugh. He's like, yes, you did. <laughs> like, it's so funny. She's like, I didn't laugh. He's like, I, yeah, you did. I'm God. I heard you. And then at like 100 years old, Sarah gets pregnant with Isaac. And God's promise was fulfilled that that he would have this son. And he's like, this is incredible. And then in in Genesis 22, things get real. Sarah, let's pull it up for a second. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. And then God said, take your son. Listen to this. Take your son, your only son, whom you love. Isaac, like, he really starts to press on. He's like, take your son. You know, the only one you have. We don't need to get into Ishmael. That's not worth it right now. The only one you have, oh, the one you love. And it's like, the one I promised you, the one you've been waiting 100 years for. Take him. And go to the region of Morah and sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain that I will show you. Like, like the air should suck out of the room at that comment. Like, that's... God's like, take your son, the one son that you have, the one that you love, and I want you to kill him and sacrifice him to me. And I remember when I first read it, it was like God tested him, and I was like, this doesn't make sense. Like, why is God testing him? He clearly has faith. Like, he's done all of these things. Like, God has slowly, if we look at brick by brick, God has slowly been building into Abraham for the last, like, 10 chapters of Genesis. Like, he keeps doing things where Abraham has to keep trusting God, and God keeps showing up. So he's been building up, building up, and building up, and Abraham's been doing it. At one point, he was like, hey, I want you to, uh, you, you, you need to go to a different land. And he's looking at his cousin Lot, and he's like, hey, uh, our people are fighting. We're, there's too many of us for this land. We should split up. You pick. Do you want the good land, or do you want the bad land? And Lot's like, I'm going to take the good land. 
And Abraham was like, oh, okay, uh, I didn't see that coming. You know, he got home, and Sarah was like, so which land did you give him? He's like, I didn't give it to him. He, I told him he could have whatever he wanted, and he took the good land. Um, and so he's been slowly doing these things to show God that he believes and he trusts the promiser. So you get to this moment, and you're, you have to imagine Abraham, in my opinion, if I were him, I'd be like, what, what do I have to do to show you that I believe in you? Like, are you kidding me? One, no. Two, no. Three, you promised me this would be the person. You didn't say one of your sons. You said Isaac. My descendants will come through Isaac. Are you serious right now? But Abraham doesn't do that. He's like, okay. I read somewhere they were like, it's not that God was testing Abraham's faith, but he was revealing Abraham's faith to him. And I'm like, that's still, that's a hype. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and loaded his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. And when he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. And on the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. He said to his servant, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac. And he himself carried the firewood and the knife. And as the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and said to his dad, Father, yes, my son, the fire and the wood are here, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. And when they reached the place God had told them about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. And he bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. And then he reached out his hand and he took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied, very much like Isaac or uh, Isaiah. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. So at the last second, God's like, stop, 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 stop. Good job. What? I was talking about the idea of surrendering with Morgan, and I was talking about this when some of the people in Sarah actually brought up the story of Abraham and Isaac, and I thought, this is a good one. I've been mulling it over. Here's the problem with surrender. I think sometimes when we go like, okay, I'm going to surrender myself to God, it's like I'll surrender to the things that I know are bad, like a, that addiction or that problem or my, my hurt feelings or whatever. But God's like, no, but I want you to surrender everything. And I think we go, yeah, but if I give you everything, then you're going to take it from me. And you have some lesser version of life planned for me. So, no, I'm not going to do that. I'll give you the things that I don't like or are gross or people tell me I have to get rid of. But you may not have everything because if I give you everything, you're going to take everything from me. Now, this is a, this is a story where you look at it, and it is extreme. I will give you that. But my biggest fear is if I go, God, I'm just going to lay it all out for you. My son, my wife, my happiness, my finances, my health, all of it. God's going to go like, mine, 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 mine. Your life is going to stink now. Like, I think there's a reality in that. That we think that God has some lesser version. And because we, we, we believe that, we're like, then I'm going to make things happen that I want to happen. Then I'm not going to surrender those things. Come hell or high water, I'm going to hold on to those things. Because we don't believe that he's really good. We really don't. That's Genesis 3, right? Adam and Eve are walking in the garden. They are walking with God. They have everything afforded to them. And a snake whispers to them, hey, what if he's not as good as you think he is? And that one comment drives them to go, you're right. We should be able to do what we want. Not always, but when we want to do it. Because we don't believe that he is good at his core for everything. It's just true. 
or we would totally lay things down. Because Abraham was like, I really do believe that you are good, and I will do this. And I'm sure he wasn't like whistling for the three days they were riding their donkey out there. Like it wasn't even like go backyard and do this. It was like go here. And he's like, that's three days I have to think about this. Like I don't know if anyone would be like, I'm not good. There's no way in three days I'm not turning around. Or I forgot the knife at home, right? Like we just don't believe that he's good. Listen to this. Romans 8. This is crazy cool. We don't believe that he's good, but here's what he says. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, then who can be against us? He did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whose God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus, who died more than that, and who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, as it is written, for your sake we face death all day long and we are considered sheep to be slaughtered? No, in all of things we are more than conquerors. Ready for this? We are more than conquerors for those who he loved, for those whom he loved. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither heights nor debts, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. We just don't believe that he is good all the time. And so that's what is inhibiting us from surrendering. If we really believe that, we wouldn't hold things back. And this isn't a condemnation. Romans 8.1, the beginning of that chapter says, Therefore there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Right? Ephesians 5.1, For it is freedom's sake that God, that God has set you free. Right? So don't be yoked again by a burden of slavery. The whole scripture is designed around this concept of God loves you, and he desires you to be completely surrendered to him. But he is good, and you can trust the promiser. If, if Abraham trusted the promise, he'd be like, I cannot kill Isaac. Because the promise was, he makes the lineage. But because he trusts the promiser, still that was fulfilled, but God was like, that is my boy. There's just a fear in us, and I get it. I get it. The fear is, what if he takes what I think is good and he doesn't, doesn't give me something better? What if he just takes from me? And that's scary. It's scary because the reality of the situation is I have a son, and I like to say, oh, we just need to give it all to God. But I don't know how, hard, how easy that would be to do. And I know this is, this, I don't mean to be culturally too relevant, but like I have been really affected by the Kobe Bryant thing today. Because I'm like, I, that's my, like my son, that's all I got. Like I can't lose him. Now, I'm not saying that God is like, I want you to sacrifice all your sons, right? That's not what he's asking in the scripture. What he's asking for is for us to have the courage and the confidence and the faith because we, we don't have a conceptual understanding of him, but we have a legit understanding of who he is because he's our friend and our father and our God and our Lord and our king and everything to us that we would say, everything is on the table, God. Everything is yours. I'm not afraid because I know that you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Mother Teresa was just a baller. Uh, if you've ever read her books, like anything about her, she's incredible. Like I love her. That should be a bumper sticker. Mother Teresa is a baller. <laughs> um, 
Mother Teresa, a decade after she passed away, uh, someone found a lot of her journals and they published them. And for 45 years of her entire life, she did not feel the presence of God. And she, and no one knew it. Even her closest friends were like, I had no idea. Like, did she suffer from depression? And she even writes, no, I just, I felt that I did not feel the presence of God. And she started warning people near the end of her life, listen, Satan is around and he's trying to whisper to you that God's not real and he doesn't love you. Don't let him. He is good. He is good. And all the while, she is like, I don't even feel the presence of God, but I know he's good. Like, that's insane. That's trusting the promiser, not the promise. That's insane. And again, we're like, well, it's Mother Teresa. Yeah, it's Mother Teresa. And it's the same God that loved Mother Teresa that loves you and me. Unreal. Okay. So we're going to finish up. So we know that, first, we want to have a genuine encounter with with God, and second, because we have that genuine knowledge and trust and hope and love of a real God that we can trust him, the promiser, and not just his promises. doesn't mean we're skeptical of the promises, but we, we trust him as the promiser. And so my third thought is for us to actually submit and surrender, there has to be a seriousness, though, to the way we pursue. So Colossians 3, Taylor, can you throw that up there? I'll find it. Gentiles eat potato chips. Okay. Um, you ready for this? This is crazy. Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things, for you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. One of the Gilmores shared earlier today, <laughs> I still don't know who, the heart matters. For us to have a genuine belief and knowledge of who God is, and for us to trust him, we then need to fix our heart on him and our mind on him. Because what your heart longs for all day and what your mind thinks about all day, that is what captivates your soul, and that's what you worship. And ultimately, that is what you want, that's what you surrender yourself to. And so every moment that we are able to, we need to try to fix our heart on things above, that we would fill it with things that are godly, that we would focus it on things that are godly, that we would long for things of God, and that our mind, that we would think about things of God, that we would, we would dwell on things of God, that we would talk about things of God, right? That all the things in our mind and our heart would be pivoted upward, because anytime they're not, they're just filling with things that aren't God, and they're not even filling themselves with bad things all the time. Like, I don't want to demonize everything. Everything's not demon. You know, you know why things aren't good? It's because we're sinful, right? Everyone's like, social media is bad. Social media is cool. We're sinful idolaters who have no understanding of self, selflessness or idolatry or whatever, self-propaganda. Like, it's bizarre how we've warped that thing. It's good, but we've ruined it. Sex is good, but we've ruined it. Um, Relationships are good, but because we're sinful, we bring in garbage and we ruin them. So it's not about the things that we're trying to avoid. It's keeping our mind and our heart focusing on Jesus and having a seriousness about that. If you read in uh, Jeremiah chapter 3, so many times God's like, look, I want to forgive you. I long to forgive you. FYI, later I will have forgiven you by the cross. Just admit that you're sinful. Acknowledge where your heart isn't on me. Acknowledge where your mind isn't on me, and I will cure your backsliding. Like, he's like, I'm not even saying, hey, turn around and look how far you've come, and then march your butt back up to me. 
He doesn't even say that. I, I'm convinced that the story of the prodigal son, if, if the prodigal son stayed away too long, I'm sure the dad would be like, you know what, I'm going to get him. Right? That's the whole story of Hosea. You know what, forget it. I'm going to get them. I'm not even going to wait around anymore. So it's not a matter of us being like, okay, i got to be serious about this. Oh, God, 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 dang it. I was thinking about my gas being empty. God, 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 God. You're like, that's, that's absurd. That's not what he's calling us to. He's calling us to a genuine affection for him. So what are the things that stir your hearts? What are the things that stir your minds? What are the things that literally draw you into an affection with Christ? Do them. Do them in abundance. What are the things that steal from you? Avoid them. Avoid them as far as you can. Right? It says in James that, that uh, Satan is, is prowling around like a lion waiting to destroy you. So if social media doesn't stir your affection for God, get rid of it. And again, discipline doesn't bring about love, but your love of Christ brings about discipline. So if your relationships are toxic, deal with them, get rid of them, reconcile them, whatever you have to do, but turn them so they bring affection to you. This is a weird thought. I, uh, my young life leader when I was in high school took us to a cemetery one time. And he had us walk around, and he was like, what did you notice? And I'm like, a lot of dead people in here. And he was like, what did you notice about their lives? And I'm like, what about their lives? He was like, their whole life is summed up in a dash between their birth and their death. That's your whole life right there. And I was like, wow. He was like, that's your whole life. At the end of the day, that's what people see on this side of eternity. And for some reason, it really started to stir my affections of like, man, I want my life to matter. I want to, I want to pursue the things that matter. And so for me, this is going to sound weird, going into cemeteries actually stirs my affections for Jesus. Going into the woods stirs my affections for Jesus. And so do those things. Be serious about those things. That's how you turn your heart to Jesus. That's how you turn your mind to Jesus. Some of you are like, like Taylor, Taylor uh, Ely in the back, he loves to cook. I am bad. I like threw a crock pot in and it'll probably be bad, right? Taylor Ely loves to cook. He should do that because that stirs his affections. So this isn't like, okay, now you just need to read your Bible 14 hours a day, okay? That's not even what God has called us to. He's called us to look at him just like the seraphims do and go, gosh, you're so beautiful. So we need to have a seriousness, though. For us to submit and surrender our lives to him, we have to have a seriousness and an intentionality about how we get ourselves under the waterfall of who he is. Okay, so here's, here's where we're at. If you haven't gotten to a place where you feel like God is anything more than a concept, then get on your knees at some point and ask him for that reality. Ask him for that life quake moment. Invite people in and say, share with me, pray over me, sing over me, whatever way to do, I want to know that. If that's where you're at, then be there. This is not like, like don't, don't skip the next steps. Be there. Be there as long as you want if you, if you know that God is real, then start asking yourself, do I trust the promiser? And what are the things that are inhibiting me from trusting the promiser? I'm scared. I'm anxious. I'm sad. I don't want to give things up. I don't believe that he's good. I don't believe this is the best version of my life. I, I don't know. Whatever it is, start to list those things out. Speak them into existence. Tell them to him. Don't give them power over you anymore. Get to a place where we can trust the promise. I'm talking to myself. Like, there's no way I'm at the end of it. Like, come on, guys, let's go. I'm very much in the middle of this continuum. And then get serious about the things of God. Set your hearts on things above. Set your minds on things above. Listen, this is the verse that didn't get us, and I'll end here in a minute. For you died. For those of us who are in Christ, we died. 
and our life is hidden in him. It's not about the David Drees show anymore. It honestly never was, but I always thought it was for a while. I'm dead. I've been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. Let's get serious about the things. Let's go for the things that stir our affections. Let's flee from the things that steal from us. And if you don't know what they are, ask someone what your blind spots are. There's a reason they call them blind spots. We have to get serious about it, though, or all of this doesn't matter. Or we're just coming in here, and we're singing, we're having an emotional experience, an emotional time, and nothing changes. Satan would love for us to get together and do that and then leave unchanged. Like, he would love for you to have a God quake and a me quake and then not have a life quake. Like he'd be like, that's great, fools. They're so awesome in there, and then they leave, and they're total worthless. Like, he would love that. But that's not who God is. That's not what God has called us to do, and that's not what we have. To, we don't stand in that power. We stand in a ridiculous power. So let's be serious about it. I'm going to pray, and then, I don't know, is the band going to play again, no one? You guys got one more in you? Okay. Because <laughs> I can do it. I, I listened to a lot of Rich Mullins back in the day. Some of you don't get it. That's fine. Google them. You're going to love the music. Um, God, thank you for today. Thank you that you are a God who came down, that you can. We, we don't have to be a concept because you came down. It says that you took on flesh and you dwelt among us and that you uh, aren't a God who's distant. So thank you that that's a reality. And, and, and please, for, for us in the room, show us yourself. God, help us remember that the promiser is, is who we trust and the, and the areas that we don't want to do that and the thoughts that we have that make us not want to do that, take them from us, heal, heal them in us, whatever you have to do. And God, mark in us a seriousness to pursue you, not, a, not out of a, a, a behavioral need or a dis- discipline movement, but, but instill in us a seriousness because we're so enthralled by who you are and your beauty and your worth and your, your majesty that we just want to. So Thank you for this church. Thank you for these people. Pray that you would just um, just do some ridiculous things in us, Lord. In your name, amen.